Did you know that Ghana was the center of the British slave trade and was the first sub-Saharan nation to break free from colonial rule? Did you know that it is regarded as one of the most peaceful countries in the world? Did you know that with its sunny beaches, lively cities, friendly people, and easy methods of traveling around the country, Ghana is a great place to visit for tourists? Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon-Bennett coming to you from a rainy Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am joined by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, my friend, we have a, a very interesting show today, one uh, that we've never covered before, so I'm actually looking forward to this. I am as well. Uh, it's going to take us to Ghana. Uh... On a historic pilgrimage, I'm actually really, really looking forward to starting this conversation. You know, I think a lot of times when people talk talk about going to uh, Africa, if you happen to uh, not be of African descent, you always hear about places like South Africa or Kenya or Tanzania or maybe up uh, in the uh, north of the Sahara in Egypt. But you never really get into uh, the area of Africa, uh, at least on most shows that I've seen where you're actually where most people, most Blacks from the Western Hemisphere actually come from. So I'm, I'm really excited that we have our guest on today. Most certainly. So uh, let, me get at, let me dispense with the show announcements. You can catch our podcast at tripcast360.com or wherever you get your podcast. We are on all the platforms, iTunes, Google, Amazon, Spotify, iHeartRadio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we prefer if you come to our website, tripcast360.com. You can like, share, uh, uh, encourage your friends and family to follow us, and we would most appreciate it. And before Dave gets into the announcements on our social media handles and that great information, um, we are going to sometime in the next month start a special push to really engage people with our Instagram platform. Um, so pay attention to some announcements. We're going to have some contests, giveaways, and all that other good stuff. Uh, we're not quite ready yet, but we are working on it. So. Uh, Please get ready to participate, and there will be prizes, by the way, so so we invite you to join us. Uh, Dave, let them know about the other uh, places they can catch us. And yes, we are on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And follow us, like us, message us, and tag us. And to begin receiving our newsletter, go to our website, tripcast360.com, and sign up. There's lots of great information and travel these that you might want to consider. Great, great, great. Now, let me jump into today's show um, because our guest has a little one who may uh, want to interfere with our <laughs> show and decide he wants to be a guest too. So let me get on with it. If you have any ambition to learn about a world that extends beyond our borders, then you'll love today's guest. Stephanie Clater is a gifted and award-winning bilingual reporter and multimedia journalist. She, like most good journalists, possesses a natural thirst for knowledge about the world in which we live. It is that thirst for cultural awareness and understanding that has taken her to know fewer than 14 countries and counting. She studied in the Dominican Republic, and I believe she was an English teaching assistant in Bogota, Colombia, which I'm guessing is what led her to at least in part write the book Black Trekking, My Journey Living in Latin America. She's also the founder of the Black Black Trekking Travel Blog, which she sh- uh, shares some of her fascinating travel experiences, including one special trip to the motherland of Ghana, which we will discuss momentarily. Later is a graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism, Spanish, and international relations. Talk about a mouthful, Stephanie. Uh, welcome to TripCast 360. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. You wrote a very interesting article, Don't Leave Ghana Without Visiting Asen Manso. Yes. And, and that grabbed my attention immediately. But first, let's get some background. You wrote your entire life has been shaped by travel. Your first trip was at just a m- one month old when you traveled throughout the U.S. with your family. Years later, you traveled to Several countries that Michael mentioned and think Michael said 14 and counting. Yes. How has that travel experience changed your perspective on life? Meaning all the 14 countries I've traveled to? All 
the 14 countries plus that you've traveled to and all the experiences that you've had there, uh, the different cultures, how folks live, how has that changed your perspective in life? I think it made me have a greater understanding for um, just how much, you know, sometimes we think that we're way more different than we are. I feel like when you travel around the world, you, you realize, hey, we all want the same things in life. You know, we all have to eat, sleep, and we all, um, you know, want well for our children. And it just made me realize how much more in common we are than we think. Um, it made me more appreciative of everything that I have here in the United States. Like, I I would have never guessed that something as um, for us in the United States, as simple as hot water, is like a big deal. And not everyone in the world has that. Right. Um, running water yeah. <laughs> is something that simple. Um, lots of people in the world don't have that. So just being able to get out of my little bubble of growing up in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, and then, uh, you know, traveling some of the rural areas of Dominican Republic. So. In addition to being known for its lush forests, diverse animals, and miles of sandy beaches along the coast, Ghana is also celebrated for its rich history and cultural heritage. Is that what sparked your interest in, in this amazing destination? Um, I've always loved like history and um, studying Black history. And so... I just always had wanted to go back to the motherland because I had studied um, across the pan, you know, African diaspora. I'd studied, you know, African-American history. I'd studied um, Afro-Latino history. And so I felt it was time to go back to where we originated in Africa. And so I wanted to get over there, especially before I had children, because I thought it would be a lot more difficult. And um, I wanted to go with friends, but they didn't want to go. And so I went by myself because I was determined to go. And um, that's how I ended up going back to Ghana. I just really felt it was important to find out, you know, what, what did our, where did our culture originate? Like, what was it like over there? Um, what are some of their traditions? Um, and I wanted to see, like, in terms of, like, the castles where they held people in bondage. I wanted to hear their perspective as to what happened and how could this happen? How could you put human beings in bondage? Um, and so being able to read it, the history in their museums and ask questions from like, you know, the Ghanaians about how all this came to play, it really kind of um, put it all into perspective for me. Wow. I, I, I actually applaud you for going. Now, we're going to have to have a little discussion with your friends later for not joining you on this journey, but uh, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll have that discussion with another day. You tell them to call Big Mike. I'll take care of it for you. Um, but your journey was interesting. I have I actually on my mother's side of the family traced my family's heritage back to uh, Benin and Togo, which is right next door to Ghana. And so I. I I was fascinated when I saw that you had actually walked on the trail that actually where they took their last bath. I saw you signing a couple of pictures of the Memorial uh, Wall of Return. From a emotional standpoint, what did just touching that culture mean to you? The last bath, um, they make you walk barefoot down the path. And I think you just get a sense of like, you just start thinking like how they might've felt to be in chains and captured, not knowing where they're going and walking down this path. And, and like the river there is like very high and like rushing water. And that's where they put them um, to take their last bath. And then they branded them there. Wow. Um, and it's just a very like secluded, forested place and I think just walking through that it really made me think about how they must have felt and not knowing what was to come they have the um dungeons and to walk in that space in the slave castles um or in the castles where they enslaved people to like what was 
what was crazy to me is that the floor is like brick, but it's brown all over it. And I asked, what was that? That was like feces. It's like still there mm. on the ground, like ingrained in the ground now. It's like all the, you know, feces from them having to stay in there on top of each other and for however long. And so, and then there's like no windows. And so seeing where they were held, it was just really powerful. Um, it, it was hurtful. Um, you just can't, I don't know, you just can't imagine like how could someone treat human beings this way? Um, yeah. You, but I you, wanted, I want to experience it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you're right. You have to be touched by that on some level. If not, I would suggest that you're probably not human. Um, and, uh, it, it hurts. I remember, uh, I, I think uh, it was president Obama who went to Ghana. Yeah. And I remember he took his girls down to where the, uh, what's that, uh, passage where you walk out to the slave ships and he was looking. Oh, the down door there. of no return. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. I went to all the same stuff that he went to. Yeah. That, that, that's gotta be emotional. And even to this day, I have great difficulty, uh, watching movies and films that depict this stuff. I, I have to kind of steal myself to even get ready to go and, um, and, and watch stuff like that. And then, you know, just to bring some of what you just said forward, they actually have one of those door of no returns in the Bahamas on Nassau. When I was there mm -hmm. in 2010 or 2011, they took us to it and I, I walked in it. I mean, I'm six foot four, so it was a little hard for me to fit in there, but I did. And, and there were six of us and we were just quiet. You could hear a pin drop. We were all so quiet, just sitting here, just imagining what the shame must have felt like. So uh, on a lighter note, I also saw you wrote a couple stories about traveling to Ghana as a solo traveler. What was that like? Um, um, I really enjoyed it because I got to have my own time to be able to do like what I wanted to do. Like I got a personal tour around the castles. They hooked me up with one of the guides for the castles. And so they took me all around and explained everything. It, it, it's funny. You're talking about this. I think Dave, correct me if I'm wrong. I think she's the fourth or fifth guest in our 50 episodes we've had so far that uh, are solo women traveling. And uh, I know we, when Gina Paul was on our show, her friends didn't want to go with her to, I think it was Italy. So she went by herself. Um, we have another young lady who just goes on her own. She doesn't even ask anybody to go with her anymore. She just goes, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it is becoming a thing now for women to just go. Yeah. How about Samaya who was in uh, Italy and she just got frustrated. She just wanted to get out of Italy and a friend, a friend said to her, just go to Portugal. And she started asking questions. She said, no, just pick up and go to Portugal. And she just left, and now she lives in Portugal. Yeah, we have a lot of that on our show. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that foreign for me to go to Ghana by myself because I didn't know anyone when I lived in the Dominican Republic. But it had been a while, so I was like, ooh, Steph, what did you sign up for? You haven't done anything <laughs> like this in a while. <laughs> Ghanaian people, Ghanaian society, schedules are not important. They see people as more important. And I can relate more to that being someone from the Caribbean, where we have a different time zone. Our time zone, our time zone is not dynamic. It's just whatever time you get there. So I, I can relate to that more. And my question is, did you experience that when you were there? Um, obviously, like you mentioned, you were there on a scheduled trip. So how was that trip? I would say for mine, like we did have an itinerary. Um, we may have got off course at times because I kept adding in things I wanted to see. <laughs> but um, we, for the most part, we stuck to our schedule. Um, when we went places, it was just kind of like, like we went to the um, castle for the Ashanti people, like they, uh -huh. where their um, king lives and went and learned about the history there. It was just kind of like you show up and then they just give you a tour. So I think a lot of things that I got to do, it wasn't really like, it's like whenever you show up, they'll take you on the tour. But I will say what amazed me was when I went to one of the nightclubs 
And literally no one showed up hardly until <laughs> 2 a.m. And they said that they're open till 6, but apparently no one even shows up till <laughs> 2. And by I went at like midnight. So by 2, I was exhausted and I had to get up the next day at like 8. So I was like, I can't hang with y'all. This is crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and actually, I went. I went to to another, I went to like a live band that was playing too. And even at that place, like around like 11, 12 midnight, hardly anyone there, no one dancing. Like apparently the party doesn't get started till two in Ghana. And folks in Barbados would tell you, and it's just not just Barbados, it's, I guess it's across the Caribbean. They would tell you, that's why we live longer. We don't stress out like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, over time. That's probably true. That is true, Michael. I, I have another response to that, but it's not a polite <laughs> company, so I'm gonna let it slide right on out the door. And, See? and and I'm about to date myself because I know you live in Florida now. Uh, um, and I spent part of my childhood in Florida. And back when I was a child, bars in Florida stayed open till 4 a.m. Mm. And then we would either go out to eat breakfast or we'd find a couple of after hour places to go out the, until six or seven in the clock in the morning. Yeah. And, and we would go to sleep. And I say all that to you to say that when we went out at night, we didn't go until midnight because we knew that bar wasn't closing until at least four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Well, I used to live in Louisiana and it's still like that where everything's open till six. Uh-huh. And so like we used to do that in Louisiana when I was still in my twenties, but once I hit 30, I can't stay up till four or six in the morning. <laughs> I can't do it anymore. Especially if I'm waking up at eight. I don't know. I need my rest. Yeah, and it gets worse. Um, Ghana, we've got a few more questions, and then we'll move on to some of your other uh, adventures. Um, when you're not going to explore the origins of the slave trade, and I'm specifically talking about Ghana, Pick, give me the 360-degree view of Ghana as a, simply a tourist destination. What's there to do, to see? Because I know some of that you saw in your own journey that was separate and distinct from the slave trade. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely recommend getting some clothes made. I wish I had brought more money. I really, I love seeing like the women walking around with the different patterns. Um, so I would recommend finding a seamstress and getting some clothes made. Um, Accra. It was really beautiful. It reminded me a lot of the Dominican Republic. Um, some of the same like um, plants and trees that you'll see in the islands you'll see there in Ghana. So it really kind of took me back. Mm-hmm. Um, Osu, which is like a neighborhood in Accra, has some really cool things to do, like different um, places to go out. Um, like it's like a place. I forgot the name of the place, but. You go and they have like this like liquor that they make and people go out there to hang out and drink. And it's kind of like outdoor. There's like an up and coming place in Osu. Um, they had a lot of like nightclubs there that looked really nice. I was impressed. Um, a lot of nice hotels in Accra. They have Labadi Beach, which is a popular spot. And you can sit out there and like drink and eat and just watch all the sights and they play music. You can ride a horse if you want to <laughs> buy souvenirs. Um, there's a Aburi Gardens, which is outside of Accra that I heard is really nice. I didn't get to go there. A lot of the um, markets in Accra, you can get like a drum, um, wood carvings clothing, jewelry. I really enjoyed going to some of the markets and just kind of negotiating with the different people. Although it's hard to win in Ghana. Like I had way better negotiation in Dominican Republic. They're like, oh, they're like, my sister, come on, you know you want to support me, my sister. (laughs) (laughs) And they would take all your money. (laughs) Yes. The Ghanaians, like it's not cheap over there. They don't be giving you no discount. They know you're from the States. But I mean, they have some good quality stuff, though. Um, what else is there to do? I went to um, where Webb Du Bois, the last place that he lived. I think it's the African-American Center there. That's pretty cool because he has a huge library. He brought all these books over there. Yeah. 
So you can see books about the diaspora there. You can see the encyclopedia that he was working on. That's why he came to Ghana. And I was surprised because the Syracuse University, uh, I think it was the African-American Studies Department, had written a letter to him and saying how they supported him and and working on this like Pan-African encyclopedia. So that was kind of fun to see being a Syracuse grad. Um, The mausoleum for uh, Kwame Nkrumah, their first president, Mm -hmm. that was a good place to visit and just learn like their history. Um, I'm trying to think other places to go. What I really enjoyed was I went through a naming ceremony, but not in Accra. I went to um, near Cape Coast. It was a village. Uh, there's a prison down there, mm-hmm. and near the prison is a village called Simwa. And so I went there and I had a naming ceremony, and that was fascinating. Oh, wow. What is that like? What is that like? Can you tell us? Can you describe yeah, that? So my um, tour guide set it up. And so I'm just riding in this van all over Ghana. So I'm like, where are we going today? And we're like, we're going to this <laughs> village. So we, we show up to the village and we had to go into the chief's house and ask for permission, the chief of the village. So you like walk in this room and there's just all these elders sitting around like on the floor in a circle. And then there's the chief in his chair. And you can't, I learned like you can't talk to the chief. There's a messenger that you have to talk to the messenger and he relays your message to the chief. And then the chief responds to the messenger and then he tells everyone Interesting. what the message is. And so, you know, they, I mean, they speak English in Ghana, but for stuff like that, they speak their native language. And there was a lot of speaking their native language. So there was a lot of things, you know, I didn't know what was being said. But um, in that room, they were speaking Fonti because it was a Fonti village. And um, (laughs) it was funny because, so it was a family in this village that was going to name me, but they had to get permission from the chief. And apparently they were supposed to give the chief rum in order for it to be approved. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they forgot the rum. <laughs> so I'm sitting here and I see like, I'm just watching their faces and I see it getting heated. So, and the guy who's supposed to name me, he's like getting all mad. He's like something is feet. So I'm like, what is going on? And so my tour guide was like translating for me. And he's like, oh, he forgot to bring rum. Hold on, he's got to go out and get the rum. <laughs> so he like leaves, storms out. He comes back in and he gives it to the chief. And then they like smile, whatever. And so um, they eventually said in English, like, okay, you can be named in our village. And um, I wanted to take a picture with the chief, but you can't, you can't like sit next to him because you're not on his level. And so they had to like arrange the seat so that the chief is like a little bit behind me and I'm in front of him for the picture. How about if you gave him two balls of rum? <laughs> <laughs> no, they were like serious. They're like, like, and so that was fascinating to me just to learn like how these villages function and like yeah. have these chiefs and then they, you know, correspond to the king of their kingdom. And, and so like Ghana, I mean, they have a president, but that president really relies on, especially what the Ashanti kingdom chief, chief yeah. no, the Ashanti kingdom king what he has to say has a big influence on like what the president would do. Mm. So that was really bad. Yeah. But what, but, what, what Dave didn't tell you is he's the one that forgot the rum. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, after the chief approved me, we went to this house and like the whole village came really? and they had like this dancing presentation. And so they did all this dancing. This guy was like throwing fire. And I mean, it was really fascinating. I think it was entertainment for the whole village. And then we went into the house and that's when they did like the ceremony and it was like, it was all in Fonte, but they like translated to me and like they put rum on your tongue. Like, I guess if you're a baby and you get named, you're supposed to after eight days being born. And like they put, I guess, water to teach you good and then rum to is for evil. And they put on your tongue to teach the baby the difference between the two. And then they had this thing where they had to like make me stand up and sit down three times. Um, so a lot of like little like rituals they had me do. 
But I like the name they gave me. What name did they give you? Um, they <laughs> said, my name is Nana Aba Ahima. Wow. <laughs> Nana is for royalty. So if you see like Ghanaians and they have Nana in front of their name, that's what yeah. it means. They're uh-huh. like royal. And then Abba is because I was born um, on a Thursday. Um, yeah, a girl. I don't know if it was or It has to do with the day of the week that I was born. Okay. And in their language, it's Abba. And the last and syllable then, is? Uh, Ahima was, um, it was an elderly woman. She was there. She's like almost 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And they like named me after her. Um, and they said that her family like helped start the village. And so they just felt like okay, perfect name for me. So I got to tell you, that must have been one awesome trip. It was. I'm sitting here listening to it, but I'm watching your face and just this <laughs> reaction that you're having to the questions Dave and I are asking. You're just like researching your memory for all this fondness and the smile comes with it. And it must have been an awesome trip. It was. I was so grateful to um, have gone on it and to and just take the leap of faith and to have to take it because I knew for me it was very important and I just wanted to go, especially before I had kids. And it was the right thing to do because now I'm a mom and I it might have been very hard to get away. Now, what the hell's wrong with your friends who didn't want to go? So that's the story. So my friend that was supposed to go with me is actually from Ghana. Um, but the reason why she didn't want to go was because she was just getting done with med school and she hadn't been back for like 20 years. And so she was like, I go back, I have to bring all these gifts for my family. And like financially, I'm not, I'm not able to at this another position to do that. Right. And so she wanted to wait another year, which she did go. She went um the end of 2019. Um so yeah, and I just was like, I can't wait another year because I don't know what's gonna happen with me. And had I waited another year, I would have been pregnant. So yeah. right. it worked out. <laughs> From a logistics standpoint, before we delve into some of your other adventures, how did you get there? How long did it take? What was your flight arrangements? How did you kind of work your way? Because there's no direct flights from Tampa, Florida to Ghana. <laughs> no, I went. There is a direct flight from Tampa to the Netherlands. And so I flew from, I think it was either, actually it was Orlando to uh, the Netherlands. And then I flew um, from Amsterdam to Accra. So it was like seven hours to Amsterdam and then like four hours to um, to Accra. And on the way back, I flew from Accra to New York, which was a 10-hour flight, and mm-hmm. then New York to Orlando. Yeah, you know, it, it has always bothered me, and, and I, I never thought about this. I attended the African Diaspora Heritage Conference in Trinidad and Tobago back in 2004, mm-hmm. and we were talking about flights into Ghana then from okay. the Caribbean or at least from the U.S. mainland or parts of, like, Brazil, which has a humongous African population, and we all looked at each other as like, does anybody find this strange that there's no flights connecting the two countries direct? I mean, if you left from Brazil, it'd be a five-hour flight across the ocean. Yeah. I, 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 I've never understood that, but anyway, I, yeah, I it would have been short from Florida, but yeah. yeah, I have to go all the way through New York. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What is the traditional Ghanaian food like? The food was delicious. Um, they eat, I believe... We had some plantains, I believe, but mostly rice, the jollof rice, yeah. which is really good. That was one regret I have is I should have bought some seasoning to bring back because I love the, the jollof rice. They have a lot of fresh fish. They eat the whole fish like in the in the Caribbean. So, but I was used to that because I had lived in the Dominican Republic, but for someone else, it might be like, what is this? Yeah. But um, yeah, they eat the whole fish, a lot of fish, uh, jollof rice, yeah, like fruit and stuff for breakfast and then they have um fufu and uh oh lord i just stretched my memory uh, <laughs> bang, i think i think it's called banku yeah okay let me make sure this is the name but that's like their traditional food i got to try it um let me make sure i'm saying that right 
yeah, uncle. What was it like when you when you tried it? Because you know, I watched some of these travel shows, and there's this guy I forgot his name on television, and he it almost seems that he seeks out the worst tasting food. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the the fufu and the banku is like a dough that they eat, and um, they eat it with different things, and you use your hands to eat it. So I did try it. Um, but it didn't really taste like much to me. I just okay. like the jollof rice. <laughs> and they have like yams too that they put in this spicy sauce, like fried yams. That tasted okay. good. Um, we went to this restaurant and we got to try like a bunch of different traditional foods. I even tried um, snail. Snails? <laughs> yes, they were gross. <laughs> Wait a minute. I've, I've eaten snails and you're right. They're gross. <laughs> yeah, it was chewy and gross. But she had it. It was like a bunch of different foods that they may eat over there. And so I was just trying everything. But yeah, I didn't like it. Did it stay down? Yeah, I didn't get sick. I never get sick. But I didn't like it. It was like... Yeah. <laughs> Rum induced coma works well, Dave. Um, <laughs> I, I have a question for you. And I'm just curious. I don't know. I don't have a set knowledge of this stuff, but did you notice some, any similarities between the cuisine of Ghana and what you could get here in the United States, maybe through the African uh, culture that's here in the U.S.? I'm just curious because I, I, I know a lot of stuff in the slave trade, you know, we lost a lot of our identity, mm-hmm. but some things we held on to. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering if that cuisine had this similar feel to it for some dishes within modern day America. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the foods that they ate, you know, were kind of traditional that we would eat. Like I was able to eat like, you know, chicken with some seasoning or like, of course, the rice. Um, But I just felt I mean, they had like fruit and stuff for veg uh, for breakfast and toast. Um, But to me, it just reminded me more of the Caribbean than it did of back home, like especially with the fresh fish. But like as far as like collard greens and like candied yams and different things of soul food that we might eat here, I didn't see that so much there. It just more so reminded me of like Caribbean food. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, D- Dave's the cook between the two of us on this show. So, you know, I- I'm, the, I'm the eater, you know. <laughs> so, no, I'm more than the cook. I like to sample the adult beverages. <laughs> Michael says that all the time. So I'm just. You know, yeah, well, saying that for Michael. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you saved me from from tossing it out. Um, you have a very interesting degree from Syracuse. What was it? Broadcasting, Spanish, and international relations. Did I get that right? Yeah, I did want to say one more thing before we get oh, okay. on that. Go ahead. In terms of the restaurants, what I found interesting, it was just one of those moments. So when you go to the restaurants in Ghana they have like a bowl and they have water in it. And then they have like dish soap at your table. And so I said, well, what is this? And they said, oh, you, you have to wash your hands. And so they like literally, um, I don't want to say make you, but it's right there in front of your table. And that tradition is you like put your hands in the water as a pour like literal dish soap on your hands and like wash your hands before you eat. And I just thought that was like very interesting that they want to make it really easy for you to wash your hands. And now mm-hmm. living in a pandemic world, like there you go. how it's it's just one of those things that you look back at, like, you know, they were more progressive than we are because we <laughs> don't really push that, you know, when you go out to eat. And um, yeah, now it's, you know, definitely even more <laughs> quintessential to do. So I thought that was that was just one of the things I was like, oh, this is different. Wow. That, that that is different. It's actually pretty prescient on their part to you know do that uh, pre-COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. All right. I'm gonna make a little bit of pivot as I start to ask you. How does a girl from Cleveland, Ohio, wind up at Syracuse University, majoring in in things that seem somewhat unrelated, but in hindsight they really are? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's an interesting question. And actually, my degree in international relations, it's a focus on Latin America, but it's also concentration in foreign security, defense, and diplomacy. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> oh, you should have been an ambassador at the State Department, yeah. not a journalist. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that was the other route I could have taken. Um, they have a program at Syracuse called Maxwell in D.C., 
where you actually spend a semester in Washington, D.C., like intern during the day. And then um, at night you have class, you go to the different embassies. And we literally studied like a lot of the global global conflicts that exist. And we hashed out how we would have solved them. So that's part of my degree. But how I got there was I wanted to be fluent in Spanish. Um, I was interested in studying Latin America. And I've always liked studying people and cultures. So I also arrived at college as a sophomore. So I had a lot more time to take on three majors because I didn't want to graduate early. So, yeah, I knew I wanted to do broadcast journalism because I always like journalism. And my, my end goal was to be a TV reporter. And so I picked Spanish because I wanted to become fluent and I thought it would help my journalism career. And then I just ended up getting a major in international relations because a lot of my core classes were in that area. So it was, it just all kind of aligned like that, but it was an amazing, I, I really enjoyed my experience at Syracuse. I mean, it was perfect. And I got to study everything that I was interested in. Wow. Well, it, it dovetails perfectly into all these conversations about these various travel destinations because the common thread in your three uh, degrees is culture. Yeah. That, 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 that's the thread that binds you together. Now, I have family in Cleveland and Shaker Heights. Um, my dad graduated from Shaker Heights High. Oh, uh, yeah. I think uh, my, my, I don't know which, I have three cousins who all grew up in Cleveland and I don't know which school they graduated from, but my aunt and uncle still live in their same house in Shaker Heights since the 1960s. They, they might know the my family. House. Oh, uh, we'll, 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 we'll compare notes later. But I, I say all that to say uh, Cleveland's not this known for this cultural metamorphosis or this cultural hotbed and stuff like that. Where, where did that love for you come from? It came from traveling. As a kid, my mom would make sure that we went to a different place in the United States every summer. I have family reunions that I go to every other year around the country. So traveling was a big part of when I was younger. And um, I think when I went to California and I was 10, it was a really transformational trip for me because Cleveland was very black and white back then. You were either black or you were white. There was very few even mixed kids. And then you go to California and everyone's everything but black or white. Yeah. Everybody's mixed together. They're it was like <laughs> everyone I saw was like either Asian or Latino and I couldn't tell the difference. And I just, it was just really like, wow, there's a whole nother world out there that I'm not experiencing. And I was like, I want to get to know the rest of this world. That's not happening yeah. in Cleveland. So it was just kind of like, it made me think like, I don't want to just stay here and for the rest of my life and never leave Ohio, which a lot of Ohioans never leave. That's, that's true. I mean, that my mom literally lived there for over 50 years and she just moved to Florida for retirement. And that was a mm -hmm. huge deal for her. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I can, I can totally get it. One of my cousins who did um, uh, graduate from um, high school in Cleveland, she now lives in Southern California. And uh, I don't think she's been back other than to visit family yet. Her two sisters have never left Cleveland. Yeah. You know, and they're, and they're approaching age 60 and they've never, one of them just turned 65 and she's never left Cleveland. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like that there. And I just was like, well, I'm going to leave here as soon as I turn 18. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's pivot to your, because you also have written a book about uh, Latin America, but I want to discuss some of your, uh, uh, your experience, particularly in Bogota. I know you went there, what, as a teaching assistant? Yeah, I had a Fulbright uh, grant to be an English teaching assistant. So I lived in Bogota for 10 months. I taught at, it's called La Universidad de la Sabana, but it's one of their top universities. Um, it's right outside the city of Bogota. And yeah, I was teaching like English conversation classes and tutoring some of the students. And then I had a side project where I'd go around and interview um, people from different communities, uh, Afro-Colombian communities. So that's kind of what I was doing there. Wow. I, I guess that degree in, in Spanish helped. Oh, yeah. You had to be fluent to get the Fulbright. <laughs> so I spoke English in the, in the evenings with my American friends, but a lot of Spanish was going on there for okay. sure. 
you're going to find this very funny. Dave knows I spent three years of my childhood in Madrid, Spain. My dad, my dad was in the air force. I was a fluent in Spanish, according to my parents at age five. I don't remember that. Um, and now having been back in the United States, uh, we got stationed in Northern Maine for four years so far away that we, uh, were closer to, uh, Quebec than we were to Boston, uh, so far North and I lost all of my Spanish. So guess what I'm doing right now? Learning Spanish. I, I, I wake up every single morning and get on Duolingo for an hour and a half to relearn the language that I knew as a (laughs) five-year-old. Listen, right now he's speaking Spanglish. Okay. <laughs> uh, Spanglish does not work. My girlfriend was born in Spain, but she was born, born and raised in Puerto Rico. Her first language is Spanish. She's not about mm. to let me do anything along Spanglish, <laughs> not to mention the fact that her mother has a PhD in linguistics. Oh, yeah. Yeah, She's so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting a pass. I was over there the other day and I was trying to say something to her in Spanish, and sure, true to form, she corrected me. You see, <laughs> you see what I tell you is Spanglish. Uh, but but I, I messed up the verb. <laughs> but uh, how how has COVID nineteen? What impact does COVID nineteen have on you? I think I read where you literally had to take a break because you of your family. You, you don't want to make your family sick. You don't want to expose them. Yeah, um, yeah. It's been pretty. I mean, the pandemic and like having my first kid all at the same time is just like. A lot. So we knew uh, before the pandemic that we probably would wouldn't travel as much like for the first three or four months. But then once the pandemic hit, it was just like, okay, we're putting the brakes on this because my mom is a heart patient. So and she Mm -hmm. lives here in Florida. She's my only family member here. So it it was a choice. Do you just lay low at the house and you were able to see your mom because neither one of us are leaving the house? And she can get to know her grandson, right. or do you just continue to be out and about, and then she won't be able to see him? Mm-hmm. So we decided, um, and plus we didn't want to get my son sick, and I didn't want to get sick. So uh, we decided that we were just gonna not be traveling um, and kind of be mostly in the house. So we've been in the house since March. I was working as a reporter. Um, last year this time and so i worked from home and then i had my son in june and then i was on maternity leave and i didn't return after Mm -hmm. um and we've we go to like parks the beach sometime we've just kind of been writing about local stuff around here but um fortunately I had a ton of content that I didn't have time to release before because I was so busy like traveling and and Mm -hmm. selling my book and doing this and that, that I never even like published half of the content that I had. And so I've been using this time to like go through and release some of the stuff that's just sitting on my phone, like putting it in Instagram reels. Like I did an Instagram reel about kente cloth and another one about a dinka cloth that's like from Ghana. So um, that's what I've just been focusing on. And then I've been able to do a lot of like virtual travel conferences and I've been networking and just really been, um, gaining a lot of like knowledge on what I need to do to move forward, to make my blog, you know, even better than it was before. Like I didn't have a search engine optimization strategy, like SEO, like I was just writing stuff, but I wasn't, using SEO so that people would actually read it. And so I've been going back and like updating my blog articles and making them, you know, optimize for, for search on Google so that they'll reach more people. So although, you know, I haven't been on a plane since early this time last year, um, it's been a good time of just to take a pause and kind of like get everything organized and like mm-hmm. network and pitch to different organizations and letting them know about my brand. And, um, I've been doing quite a few interviews as well. Um, and so I think the pause has been good for us just to be able to get organized. And like, you know, we've had an amazing time with my son because my husband works from home as well. So we've been in the house and we've just spent this last nine months, like getting to know him and being here for every little moment for him. And um, so we're excited. Um, we're hoping to get vaccinated or fully vaccinated soon. And 
then we like really get to hit the road because I don't have, I'm not working as a reporter anymore. So I have like way more time to even explore much of Tampa and St. Pete and Orlando where we live. There's so many places to take kids. And so we've kind of um, transformed the blog from just, you know, me traveling with my husband or my mom or by myself. Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to focus more on like family travel and places to take your kids and, and that type of thing. So we're really excited because we're hopeful that, you know, we vaccinated, we can start traveling again. And yeah, I'm really excited. At least, at least domestically. Yes. 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 Yeah. I don't know about overseas. I don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, there's plenty of travel bloggers that are going to Tulum and wherever else. Um, I don't know when we're going to do that, but there are so many different places that we haven't explored here, especially the South. You know, I'm from Ohio. I worked as a reporter in Louisiana, New Mexico, and Missouri and Iowa, but I still haven't explored much of the South, at least as an adult. So um, there's a lot of places to visit. There's a lot of history here that I want to get to know. One of our focuses too with the blog is going to places and and making sure we highlight um, the Black culture and the Black history that exists there. And so I look forward to going to like South Carolina where um, you have the Gullah Geechee people. And I guess there's a renewed focus there on really trying to highlight that history, at least what I was reading. So I look forward to going there and exploring what they have there in Charleston. I haven't been yet. Virginia is making a big push about black culture and history in Virginia. So that's on my list. Um, And so, yeah, I look forward to just, even if it's, domestic going to different places about black owned businesses and culture and just what to do to have a good time. Right. And now it's probably a good time to talk about your book. Uh, so there black tracking my journey living in Latin America. Uh, yes. now it's probably a good time. Let's, let's, let's talk about your book. Oh yeah. So my book is written, it's a memoir and it's written to be like a guide for especially black women. Um, who desire to live abroad, I wanted to give like a realistic picture of what it's like. And so I shared my experience, um, everything from like living with a host family, mm-hmm. uh, transportation, like I had to learn how to hitchhike in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> <laughs> and so I talk you, about do they, like, do they do it like this? Um, you go like this. Oh, okay. We used to do it like this when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so you go like that. Um, yeah, you go like that. But like in some of the mount, the villages in the mountains, like that's what you do to get back to the city. And so I discussed that. I talked about like dating, like how to make friends when you live abroad, um, different places to visit in Colombia and the Dominican Republic, like festivals to attend. And then of course I did interviews while I was over there. So a third of the book is about Black culture in the Dominican Republic and Colombia, and it includes some of the interviews that I um, conducted, especially talking to, there's a large population of displaced people in Colombia, and many of them are Afro-Colombian. So I did an interview with a man who had been displaced and like literally had to leave his family and everything behind and move to Bogota because they threatened, the guerrilla warfare groups had threatened to take his life. And so I just interviewed him about that experience. Um, so yeah, the book is a hodgepodge of all of that. And then I talked to you about um, some of the racial profiling that had gone on. And like I have a chapter called Skin Tone Matters. And so it just talks about depending, like the colorism that was going on and depending on how you look, how you might be treated. Because I felt that was important to share they didn't really prepare us for that when we went to study abroad, especially in Dominican Republic. And so um, I thought it was important to share, you know, that, hey, this might happen to you. And so you're not just like surprised, like, what do you mean all my friends can get in the club and I can't? Like, what's going on, you know? Yeah, so, you, yeah. you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because I have been, um, I don't want to say a target my entire life, but I have. I, as a lighter skinned African-American, I can get in, I was able to do things that some of my darker skinned friends could not. And, uh, I didn't recognize what was happening to me at the time because I missed the bulk of the civil rights movement 
because we were living in Spain. So I didn't have a real feel for what it was like to be African-American until I returned to the United States when I was eight years old. And even then, because we lived in Maine four years beyond that, I had no clue what some of my friends had gone through. And then when I moved to Florida, it was 1970, I was in seventh grade. It happened to coincide with the first year that they used the busing to desegregate the school systems. Mm. And they, uh, my neighbors at Tyndall Air Force Base were probably 90% white. Well, they bust us to an all-black neighborhood. And I stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, you know, light-skinned black kid uh, who still had retained some of his Spanish, had this quirky New England accent from living four years in northern Maine. I was already six foot two in the seventh grade. And I could not relate to some of my own classmates. It took me years to figure out, okay, they suffered through the civil rights movement. They suffered through poverty. I still remember some of them walking on the other side of the street when a black Mm. man, when a white man came by. If I had done that, my dad would have killed me. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, he, he didn't play that. You don't walk on the other side of the street for anybody. And so it took me a while to assimilate. But I've also found that in foreign countries, too where because I'm a little lighter skinned, I can get away with things that some of my darker black uh, friends could not. So I'm glad your book addressed that because I think that's a very important issue. Yeah. Yeah. And it was something that we, we experienced like all the time because, and like you say, like I was in a weird position because, you know, I'm African-American. I was always taught here that you're black first in terms of your identity before you're a woman, before you're American. And so that's something my mom always taught me. And so then you know, you move over there and the Dominicans are like, pero tu no eres negra. Like, you're not black. And I'm like, well, yes, I am. (laughs) And they're like, well, look. (laughs) And so, and so you're like in this situation where you have, you know, Dominicans going against the Haitians and you're looking at them like y'all both black, like what's the problem? And so there's, you know, trying to bring, you know, well, the Dominicans are bringing the Haitians down and, um, I had a lot of African-American friends there and we're all different skin shades. But when we go out, you know, if you were darker skin, they might think that you were Haitian. So you start speaking English. And then if they thought you were Haitian, you might get treated differently. And so these were like all things that we had to think about on a consistent basis every time like we wanted to go out at night and no one prepared us for that. And there was one experience that I really never forgot was like my group I was there with like nine Americans most of them were white and it was me and another friend and she was like brown skin um and for some reason we always were in the back of the van <laughs> we just always decided to ride in the back of the van and all the white our white colleagues were in the front there's a name for so that we, too but I won't I won't go there <laughs> yeah. so we drove around the country every other weekend we would go somewhere different and so we went toward the border well we never had an issue like because they have these checkpoints in DR especially close to the border we never had an issue. The cop would like, look, he, you know, he'll see everybody. And he was like, pass them, like, keep going. But one time we had our friend ride with us and she was from Chicago and she was um, dark skin. She had natural hair. I also had my hair straight and DR. And um, she was in the front of the van. And the, like the cop, he was like, stop, 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 stop. He made her like bring out her passport, her ID, like, all this stuff she had to bring out because I guess he thought she was Haitian. And to me, it was just wrong because it's like, okay, any of the white people that were in our van, they could be here illegally too. Like, why is it that you only are asking her for all her identification? Um, I mean, we know why, but it just, it was just like that type of behavior that was going on is what, like, I was like, I have to write about this in my book because no one is talking about this. Right. And how they treat darker skinned people. Yeah, I, I am mm-hmm. so glad you touched on that uh, uh, subject as a fellow author myself. <laughs> that little goobers <laughs> me. <laughs> What's the title, Michael? It's a uh, 710 split. It's called My Journey as America's Whitest Black Kid. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a title. Yeah, the, the 710 split is a uh, bowling uh, 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 reference. Um, I actually grew up bowling a lot as my way to avoid having to deal with racism around me. It was something I could do by myself. And I got Mm. so good at it that I actually won the Florida State Junior Bowling Championship in 1974. 
You're and then, old. And then when we moved to Colorado, I won their state bowling championship the very next year. And oh, it was, wow. And it was something I could do by myself. You yeah, are old. Yeah. And if you know anything about a bowling, the seven and the 10 are the two pins furthest apart on the bowling lanes. They're the ones in the corners. <laughs> oh, okay. So I use that as to kind of ex- this metaphor to kind of explain my existence in a black and white world that I didn't fit into either one. Mm-hmm. In your book, I, I just want to stay in your book for a bit. It seems that you covered the gamut of, of subjects. Could you go from covering everything about dating? To navigating the threat of being kidnapped, to teaching. <laughs> it must, I mean, you, you obviously gave uh, this a lot of thought. Yes, it's all encompassing. And I, I had a blog when I was there. So some of it is like from the blog entries. And I kept journals. And it took me a few years to commit to writing it. Part of it was fear because I was working as a reporter and I didn't want to like offend someone and lose my job and not be able to take care of myself. But the stories just kept coming back to me. And as I interviewed people and worked in different communities, I'm just like, these stories need to be told. They're in my head. They have to be written down. And so I finally commit to it. Um, but how I organized it, it's so it's, it's like tips. So each chapter is a different topic. And so like, some of the beginning chapters are like security, like how do you stay safe living abroad as a woman? And so I talk about all the things, you know, like navigating not getting kidnapped in Colombia, um, the taxis there. And so I, like that's all one chapter. I talk about there was actually a car bombing the first week I was there. So <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so that's like the first chapter is like. Welcome to your life abroad. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and then it, it moves on. And the back part of the book is more like the second half is more of like the black culture and the different interviews that I had. And the first part is more of like, you know, tasting the different food and living with a host family. How do you find housing? How do you find work? What the work experience is like? And even the difference between Dominican and Colombian Spanish, I just in the book as well. well I, oh yeah. I, I it's a that. lot that I covered, but it's yeah, it's sure. a great read. And it's not that long either. It's like 150 pages. So mm-hmm. but jam-packed with a lot of info. Is it on Amazon as well? Yes, it's on Amazon, um, Black Trekking, My Journey Living in Latin America. And then of course as an author, you prefer that they buy it on your website because then you can <laughs> sign it and you can send it out and Amazon doesn't take a third of your money. Dave's heard me complain about that a lot too. Yeah. And with Amazon, you never know it, who bought it. You just no. get the royalty at some point. And, yeah. and, but, they, and they tell you when you do that, that they don't have to share their list with you. Mm, yeah. You put it like, on them, have, they tell you that. <laughs> I have no idea who bought my book from Amazon. Um, I just get a royalty like six months later. Yeah. So it's, I always encourage people to buy it directly from me, just from my blog, blacktracking.com backslash book. But mm-hmm. it's also available on Amazon and the ebook is on Amazon. So All right. No, I, I, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you about the Amazon pricing structure. And uh, you're right. Uh, I, I actually, before COVID, I was actually going out doing tours, book tours. Mm-hmm. And, I, and uh, I found, I mean, I used to sell a lot of books, but I was also being paid to speak. Uh, yeah. And I always tell authors this: you don't make money necessarily off the book sale. You make money off of the speaking arrangements and everything else that comes with it. I still got people five years later calling me up on the phone uh, trying to write a screenplay and getting me to sell the film rights to my own book. Well, I'm also a screenplay writer, so I'm not selling them anything, but they still ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah, that was the plan before the pandemic was, you know, last fall. I had wanted to start speaking and going on tour with my book to different colleges. because. Only, I think, like 6% of Black students study abroad and probably far less apply or get Fulbrights. So I that's one of my goals is to go to different colleges and speak to students, especially Black students, about studying abroad and encouraging it. Because if you're going to work for a conglomerate or you know a major company, they will just send you abroad on the drop of a dime. Like, I need you to go to China this week and work. And if you're not used to like 
living abroad or visit traveling abroad or global experience that can be kind of traumatic for you. So um, I highly encourage, you know, college students um, to get some global experience under their belt. So I'm hopeful that I can pick up where I left off in speaking about my book and experiences of living abroad. Do you, do you have another book in the offing that Dave and I need to know about? Uh, yes, I do. I How um, did I know yeah. to ask that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so being a new mom, um, I read to my son pretty often. And so I was encouraged for my friends to make um, some travel books that on a children's level that are relatable to children. And so I'm working on a series about um, just talking about travel, but like a kid's book. So right now the plan is to write a, a children's book about my travels to Ghana, but like in a children's version. So it's going to be based off of my son and the character is going to be my son and he's going to travel to all these different places. And I'm going to include the things that I got to see. Nice. Nice. Well, so hopefully I, by the end of this year, it'll be out, but yeah. Well, yeah, you're not going to be able to travel anytime soon anyway, shot or no shot, until more people start getting this vaccination. So you got four months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not sure when we're going to um, travel. Definitely not overseas, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, we'll see. I guess maybe a couple months, hopefully we'll get be able to get back on the road. Yeah, Dave, Dave's already got his first shot. I get mine on Monday. Yeah, I can't wait to get my second shot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm going to see my grandchildren at the end of this month. So it's, um, uh, I, I'm fortunate that my daughter-in-law works in a hospital. She's already been vaccinated. So, um, you know, I get to go and hang out with the little ones for a little while. So I'm kind of looking forward to getting out again. I mean, this podcast that Dave and I are doing, we'd actually plan on doing a lot of live podcasting. Uh, and obviously, COVID shut that down before we got out of the running gates. Yeah. So, but uh, I, I also think that you're going to learn a lot from your journey down south. Uh, mm. There are some fascinating places within a very short driving distance from where you're sitting right now. I mean, even going up to Charleston's not that far if you use a day's drive. Yeah, and for sure. So, um, so uh, any other big plans coming up before we let you go? Uh, and give you the five minute respite you need before your son wakes up. <laughs> um, I think you covered it. I just would encourage everyone to check out my book, um, black trekking, my journey living in Latin America, my blog. I mean, we definitely plan to really start traveling ex and even just exploring some of the different beaches that are near Tampa and Orlando. Um, some of the different hotels that they have here. Um, really highlighting what different places to go with children. So, you know, if you have a family, definitely follow my blog, blacktracking.com and look out for my kids book that I hope to release sometime this year. But I just want to tell our audience that your book, uh, I just want to plug it here. Your book is a, is a moving memoir that weaves in tips for how to stay safe while living abroad, as well as, how to have a good time and maximize your travel experience. So go ahead and get Stephanie's book. You can get it on our website, blacktracking.com, or also get it on Amazon. But she prefers that you purchase the book from her website. <laughs> yes, good old blacktracking.com. And we'll, we will have in the write-up description for the show that we post on our website, we will have all the links to your uh, website as well and hopefully they will get it right. from, directly from you as opposed to going to feeding the beast known as amazon um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not into feeding amazon and stephanie thank you for doing this and by the way just so you'll know if you don't know this already you always have a home with us um yes. you got something to promote something to say uh, uh a trip that you want to get some attention to uh You've got our email addresses. Don't hesitate to call. I trust us. We will get you on pretty quick. Okay. That's right. So you, you always have a home with us. If you got, even if you have questions uh, separate from this podcast that are travel related, if uh, Dave can't answer them or I can't answer them, I can probably find you the answer. That's right. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, you all for finding me. I don't even know how you found that article. Like, did you just Google it or what happened? The, they, they, I, I have to no. give it to Dave. Dave found it. <laughs> I am a news buff. 
and mm-hmm. I re- and I read a whole lot, and I I found it, and I just love uh, I just love that article that I that you wrote on Ghana, and I said I've got to find here because very very often when I do my research, a lot of times you can't find the contact. So I'm uh-huh. like, how's the contact? I don't want to reach out to you at info at your website or stuff like that. I want to reach you directly. I I literally searched on LinkedIn. I searched all over and I found you. And I'm happy oh. that and, and and I'm happy that we did. Thanks yes. for coming. Thanks for coming to the program. Yeah, th- thank you so much. And uh we've been talking to Stephanie Clater and Black Trekking B-L-A-C-K-T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G dot com. You can learn everything there about her. And if you forget all that, just come to our website. We will have it in our write-ups. She also has her social media handles. Tell us what those are. I can't let you get out of here without uh, promoting that social media stuff. Definitely. Um, follow us on Instagram. It's at Black Trekking. So B-L-A-C-K-T-R-E-K-K-I-N-G. And then a down slash. All right. Well, you've heard it. And uh, so, Stephanie, again, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back sometime in the very near future. Um, and hopefully one day we'll get to do this in person as well as we all get vaccinated and uh, start to be able to move about. So on behalf of Dave, thank you so much. And uh, thank you, audience, for listening. And uh, we'll see you on another episode of TripCast 360. Yeah. I was, I was waiting for that. <laughs>